0: Welcome back, everyone, to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. This episode will be the last one of this foul year of our Lord 2020, to paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson there, and we're going to be covering two different topics today. The first one is a collection of reports of strange phenomena called the Book of Prodigies that comes from Roman history, and this one has a particular focus on very odd things that would appear in the skies over Rome, or over other parts of Italy. And then we're going to be looking at the story of the cursed gold treasure of Tolosa. Now, the collection was actually compiled at some point, we think, in the 4th century AD, the 300s AD. And we know the name of the compiler, Julius Obsequens. Beyond that, we know virtually nothing about this guy. What he was working with, though, was a much older set of historical writings by somebody who we actually know quite a bit more about, Titus Livius, or Livy, as he's often called. And Livy, for patriotic reasons, wanted to write a history of Rome, starting from the stories of its foundation by Romulus, and then proceeding through the end of the monarchy and the start of the Republic, up to his own time, the first century BC. He wrote it in order to honor Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Now, we don't have all of Livy's historical collection. Some parts of it have survived, some have not. Some we just know from certain kinds of excerpts and summaries. So this is what Julius Obsequence did. He actually sat down with a more or less complete edition of Livy, but he was looking for these really specific things, these incredibly bizarre events that were called in Latin prodigia. We say this as prodigies. Now, the way prodigy has developed over time as we talk about someone being, say, a child prodigy, like they can play the piano to an amazing degree at, say, age four or five, that kind of thing. To the ancient Romans, though, it meant any kind of out-of-the-ordinary occurrence that was going to be seen as some kind of omen, some kind of portent, some kind of message that would come from the gods, and almost always indicative of divine displeasure. At something, it's quite often not stated exactly what the gods were mad at, they probably didn't know, but this displeasure had to be dealt with. Whatever had offended the gods, whatever had broken what was called the Pax Deorum, the peace of the gods, the good relationship that the Roman people had with their deities, it had to be expiated. It had to be countered, absolved, negated, however you want to put it, through rituals, sacrifices, various kinds of procedures carried out by priests in the city or by other officials. And if they did not expiate the reason for divine displeasure, something even worse could happen in the future. So Julius Obsequin seems to have gone through and just sort of selected these things, isolating them out of Livy's account from centuries earlier. And he does give the dating of them, so we do have years. They span a period from 190 BC down to 11 BC. And we don't really know why Julius did this, just for his own amusement or the amusement of others. Was he doing the kind of thing that I do at this podcast for entertainment value, but also out of curiosity, you could say too. Or did he have another motive? It's really hard to tell. His name, Obsequens, means the obedient one, the compliant one, and that raises the possibility that Julius was a Christian. So maybe he was compiling these strange events recorded by pagans as a way of mocking what he would have seen as superstition. It's interesting that he never records what the remedies were for these prodigies. You may be wondering by now, or wondering why the hell I'm not getting to them faster, what kinds of bizarre events are we talking about? There are things like rains of stones or of blood, statues that cry, new islands appearing at sea, wool sprouting from trees, a boy born with four hands and four feet, a pig born with human hands and feet. There's a statement for the year 162 B.C. that a bull spoke at the town of Frasini, nowhere given on what the bull actually had to say. A lot of weather events for 152 B.C., It states that the columns of the Temple of Jupiter were toppled by a whirlwind, and they consulted seers, oracles, who said all the magistrates for that year would die, so they all resigned. Makes sense, right? There's an account for that same year that at Rome, people saw visions of toga-wearing men that tricked the eyes of those approaching them. Again, what does that mean? Tricked their eyes? Visions of toga-wearing men? Well, didn't most Roman men wear togas? There's things about that that are very confusing. There's an account of a boy who was born with four feet, four hands, four eyes, four ears, and two penises. Why ever leave the house, right? Unfortunately for him, most likely he was killed out of hand simply because this was seen as a bad omen that they had to expiate. He was cremated by the priests and his ashes were thrown in the sea. For the following year, 135 BC, he records a boy born without an anus. I would assume that he didn't live too long either, whether they executed him or not. There is an account of a boiling of the Mediterranean Sea near a group of islands called the Leparian Islands, that when the sea boiled, it burnt ships and men died from the fumes and that a lot of fish died as well. The bodies of the fish floated the surface. The locals gathered and ate the fish, but then they got sick. We have some accounts of natural disasters independent of livy or obsequence. The Greek town of Heliki in the Peloponnese was destroyed by a tsunami in the year 373 B.C., The account is it happened on a winter night, but in the days leading up to it, there were all kinds of signs that something bad was about to happen. Very similar things to what you see reported in Obsequence. Columns of flame were seen in the skies above the town, for example. And that right before the event occurred, rats and other animals in the town fled. And that when the tsunami struck, it was blamed upon the wrath of the god Poseidon. There were rumors that the people of Halaki had offended that god. No one is sure exactly how many people were killed by the tsunami, but the ruins were visible for a long time afterwards because they were in relatively shallow water. There are accounts of travelers in Roman times taking boats out to view the ruins, seeing walls, statues, and so forth underwater. And archaeologists working with scuba gear have actually located what seem to be some of the traces of the town of Helike. There's another account of a tsunami that struck Alexandria in Egypt, this one much later, 365 A.D., The historian Ammianus Marcellinus says that before it hit, the sea pulled back from the shore, revealing the bottom with all kinds of fish and sea creatures. Now, we know this is what happens before a tsunami. The water recedes from the shore. Locals went out and started gathering the fish, not thinking there was anything really wrong, but then the tsunami crashed back, drowning all of them. And it pushed ships very far inland. Very similar things are said by Ammianus in regards to an earthquake at Nicomedia, Today, this is the town of Izmit in Turkey, a harbor town. We can exactly date this earthquake to August the 24th of 358 AD. Ammianus states that clouds darkened the sky at dawn the day of the earthquake and a foul mist settled on the ground. And then whirlwinds began to do damage. The ancients had an idea that winds trapped inside the earth were sometimes released during earthquakes that they erupted from underground. He also describes waterspouts in the harbor. The detail that he gives is extremely gruesome reading that houses fell down the slopes, people were crushed, they were buried and suffocated, they were impaled on timbers from the ruined houses, and then a massive fire swept through the already destroyed city. Now, to return to the list of prodigies in Julius Obséquence, he includes many stories about mysterious flying objects. Flying torches, flying shields and weapons, whether that's meant to be spear points or swords or blades. Flying shields seem to be very prevalent though, for the year one hundred BC, which happens to be the year that Julius Caesar was born. There's an account of a flying shield across the sky from west to east during sunset. A few other authors, like Pliny the Elder, give the same report of a flying shield for the year one hundred BC. Of course, I'm converting the dates into the BC system because that system had not been devised yet. The original years in the text are given, according to the system AUC, or Ab Urbe Condita, from the foundation of the city of Rome. That is traditionally dated by our system to 753 BC. In the time period of the early Roman Empire, 1st century AD, the philosopher Seneca actually has an account of a number of flying objects, Ones that he calls trabace, which literally means tree trunks. Also pithii, which means barrels, columni, columns, or shields. Clip A. You might be thinking UFOs. Now, of course, UFOs have been seen in a number of different shapes in more modern times. The flying saucer is really just one shape. Cigar-shaped craft have been seen. Not exactly shields, but then again, people are going to interpret what they see based on what they know. Right shields were obviously common in the ancient world, and they're not common today. Obsequence for the year 94 BC states that at the town of Faesulae, which isn't too far from Rome, a huge multitude of people wearing burial shrouds and with pale expressions were seen walking in a cemetery. Appears to be a sighting of zombies. Obsequence also has a predilection for recording lightning strikes. For the year 114 BC, the daughter of a man named Elvius was killed by being struck by lightning while horseback riding. When her body was found, clothing had been blown from it, and her tongue was sticking out as though fire had leapt from her lower regions to her mouth. Both Greeks and Romans believed that the corpse of anyone killed by lightning had received very special treatment. A god, usually Zeus to the Greeks or Jupiter to the Romans, but sometimes there's records of other gods doing this, that would throw down a lightning bolt for whatever reason to kill these people. So it was a kind of sacred death because they had been specifically targeted. The Greeks called these people diablatoi, which means something like "god struck." Romans called them fulguriti, coming from the actual word for lightning. There's an epitaph written on a thin sheet of gold foil from a Greek tomb in southern Italy, containing a message from the deceased person as to how they met their fate. The star flanger subdued me with a thunderbolt. Roman practice was to bury the victim at the exact spot where the event had occurred. They put together a marker called a bidental, named after meat ends or a sheep that they would also sacrifice. And that area was marked as off-limits. The belief was if you trespass there, it could induce madness. Kind of interesting, they also thought that if a container of wine was struck by lightning, that anyone who would drink that wine would also be driven insane. And it was not permitted to eat animals that had been killed by lightning. Every so often, though, lightning could be actually seen as a good omen If you've ever heard of the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who ruled late in the second century AD, Marcus Aurelius was the philosopher-emperor who wrote the book commonly called The Meditations. He was leading a campaign against the Quadi, a tribe from Central Europe, and the 12th Legion that he was leading was trapped in a very bad situation where they could have been wiped out. They were not only cut off from water supplies by the enemy, but were also being surrounded and thus cut off from the rest of the Roman force. Then suddenly it began to storm, rain fell on the Romans, they collected the rain in their helmets and shields and it quenched their thirst, and then lightning bolts began to strike the enemy troops. So divine intervention enabled the Romans to turn what looked like an almost certain defeat into a great victory. It just so happens that the 12th legion was called Fulminata or the Thundering Legion. What is so intriguing about this event, which is often called the rain miracle of Marcus Aurelius, and was celebrated on the famous work of art called the Column of Marcus Aurelius, which you can still see in Rome, where you have this sort of weird personification of a storm, this massive, hulking, bearded thing hanging in the skies above the Roman troops. The exact nature of that divine intervention, though, became very controversial. Various polytheist groups thought it was their deity or deities who were responsible. Some credited a man named Julian the theurgist for uttering some kind of incantation that caused the rain miracle, and Christians at the time thought that the Christian God was responsible. Julius Obsequens lived about 200 years after the rain miracle. Given his interests, I'm sure he had an opinion on the rain miracle, but unfortunately it's lost to us. What we're looking at next is a story of a lost treasure, a lost treasure that some believe bore a curse. This is the story of the Gold of Tolosa. What's kind of interesting about it, too, is that it overlaps both ancient Greek and ancient Roman history. So the earlier part of the story is rooted in an event that occurred in the early 3rd century BC that affected many parts of southern and eastern Europe. And this was a great migration of tribes. Now, these are tribes that, by some standards, could be connected to the Celts. Greeks and Romans, though, tended to use the term Galli or Gauls. And they were native to parts of Western and Central Europe. We don't know why these tribes went on the move at the time that they did. There were some ancient authors that pointed to the possibility of famine, overpopulation. Some just blamed them for greed and avarice, the desire for plunder. Now different wings of the tribes invaded various areas. One group actually had gone on the move in the early fourth century BC and was able to capture and sack or loot the city of Rome. A very famous event in the early history of the Roman Republic. But in two hundred seventy-nine, a group of tribes led by a chieftain named Brennus made their way into Macedonia and the Greek mainland. In another episode I mentioned Ptolemy Coranus, Ptolemy the Thunderbolt king of Macedonia, who was killed by one group of these Gauls. But as the Gallic army swept through Macedonia and northern and central Greece, they approached the famous pass of Thermopylae. This is where you have the story of the last stand of the 300 Spartans. A mountain pass, really the only way through central Greece, opening things up to the region of Attica, where Athens was, and places further south. And Thermopylae has been the site of battles at several times throughout history, even in modern times, even during the Second World War. But this is one of those battles of Thermopylae. A combined Greek army was able to block the pass against the Gauls. One detachment of Gauls left the main force and made their way into the nearby region of Etolia to ravage the countryside and the population. Now, there was an Etolian force in the Greek coalition that was blocking the pass, When they got word of this, they realized that their homes, their farms, villages, women, and children were all in danger, so the troops left the scene. The remaining Greeks were evacuated by ship. The story told by several chroniclers is that the Gauls in Etolia committed horrible atrocities, raping, murdering, abusing corpses, passing babies from spear point to spear point, no specific reason to doubt this. But it does connect to the idea that the Greeks thought that the Gauls were barbarians. Their next target was Delphi, the great sanctuary of the god Apollo, and a place where treasures had accumulated, dedications. And they targeted Delphi because they had heard this, that there was treasure stored there. Most of the historians claim that the Gauls were never able to actually attack Delphi. They're stories of not just fierce Greek resistance, but also supernatural occurrences a snowstorm accompanied by thunder and lightning, for example, that blinded, confused the Gallic troops. Brennus himself, after taking a massive wound, took his own life. The Gauls then decided to withdraw from Greece. The only writer that says that they actually were able to plunder treasures from Delphi is a writer commonly known as Justin Justinus. Now, the Gauls at this point split up. One group went eastward, and they crossed the Hellespont into Anatolia, or what is called Turkey today. Another wing of the Gauls headed westward, a tribe called the Volcae Tectosages, settled in the area known as Tolosa. This today would be the city of Toulouse in southern France. And this became their new center. According to those who believe in a lost treasure, they had taken the treasures of Delphi with them But they decided to unburden themselves of the treasure because pestilence had broken out, some kind of plague or epidemic had struck them. So they tossed the treasure into various lakes near Tolosa. Now, Gallic tribes actually did make dedications like this in lakes as a religious ritual. By the late 2nd century BC, the Romans were deeply involved not just in northern Italy, where some Gallic tribes lived, but also in the southern part of what is now France, A number of tribes from further north in Europe, the Cimbri and the Teutones, had begun their own migration and were now threatening an invasion of Roman territory, including northern Italy. And this put the fear of Jupiter into the Romans because they had such terrible memories of the sack of Rome that had been done by the Gauls in the early 4th century. The Volcae Tectosages, that had lived in this area for a long time, made an alliance with the Cimbri and the Teutones. So in retribution for that, a Roman force led by a proconsul, Quintus Servilius Caipio, was able to seize the capital of the Volcae Tectosages. And he found treasure there, a massive amount of gold and silver. Strabo says that he found a total of 15,000 talents. This would be just under a million pounds of precious metal. Other writers, the aforementioned Justin and also a much, much later author named Orosius, gave distinct figures for gold and silver, 100,000 pounds of gold and 110,000 of silver. They gave the figure in talents, of course. So Caipio appropriated this as actual plunder, which was something Romans did too. But the gold and the silver are going to have different fates. The gold was sent down to the Greek city of Massalia on the coast. This is the town of Marseille in France today. The silver stayed with Caipio in the main part of the Roman army he was commanding, no explanation given as to why they were separated in that way. The silver made it back and was accounted for, but not the gold. The gold disappeared, and the troops guarding it were massacred. The rumor was that Caipio had arranged this, that those who had ambushed the column and who were generally believed to have been bandits were, in fact, men hired by Caipio himself, wanting to pocket it rather than turn it over to the Senate and other authorities back in Rome. Now, the Cimbri eventually showed up in force, led by their king named Boiorix. A great number of Roman troops were delegated to defeat the Cimbri. Caipio was one of the commanders in the area, but another commander was Gnaeus Malleus Maximus, and Caipio didn't like this guy very much. It had something to do with Malleus' social status, or lack thereof. He had just been elected as a consul, But he was what was called a new man. No one from his family had ever been elected as consul before. There was a kind of social struggle going on by this point, where the old aristocracy didn't want to see new men coming on the scene. Caipio looked down on Malleus in an intense way and simply refused to cooperate with him, refused to coordinate military operations with him. Now They were near the town of Orosio, which today is Orange. This was in the year 105 B.C., And because of Caipio's inability to put his pride aside and work with Malleus, the Romans suffered one of the worst military defeats in their history. The Kimber were able to engage Caipio and Malleus and their respective forces one at a time, piecemeal, and wipe them out. Estimates are that over 100,000 Roman soldiers were lost. Both Caipio and Malleus escaped the field, but there were serious repercussions for them. They were both put on trial for incompetence, Malleus was sent into exile, and so was Caipio. This meant that he lost his senatorial status in Rome, as well as his Roman citizenship. He was denied fire and water, a ritualistic way of saying that he could not come near Rome and interact with Roman citizens anymore. And years later, he died in Smyrna, a town on the coast of modern-day Turkey. Now, some connect this to the curse of the treasure. The whereabouts of the treasure are unknown at this point. When Caipio was condemned, it meant that he lost his property, but there are rumors that the treasure persisted in the ownership of his descendants, hidden away, secreted somewhere. Now Caipio's son was Quintus Servilius Caipio the Younger. This is kind of like saying Quintus Servilius Caipio Jr. Despite the disgrace of his father, he was still able to enjoy a military and political career. But he suffered a bad fate as well. In the year 91, he was a Roman commander in something called the Social War. But a number of tribes and communities in Italy who had been Roman allies for a very long time decided to rebel. Long story behind this that we don't have time to go into. You may be asking yourself what's so social about a war anyway? The name comes from Sochi, the Latin term for allies, so it's Rome fighting against her own former allies. One of these tribes was called the Marci. They were commanded by a man named Popidius Silo. Silo had a personal grudge against Caipio the Younger. Silo had had a good friend in Rome named Livius Drusus who had been assassinated. That had actually been the spark that had triggered the social war because Livius Drusus had been a big supporter of these Italians who thought they had grievances against Rome. And Caipio the Younger was implicated in the assassination. According to the historian Appian, Silo showed up in Caipio's camp pretending to be a defector, bringing things with him, what looked like his private treasures. They were actually lead objects that had been plated with some gold and silver to make them look valuable, and he also had with him infants, presumably twins, that he claimed were his own children. According to Appian, they were children of some of Celo's own slaves, dressed up in expensive baby clothing, so it looked like they were aristocratic children. And Celo said, I'm coming over to your side. I really regret rebelling against Rome, and I can show you what you need to do to defeat my fellow tribesmen. Caipio the Younger fell for this. Silo maneuvered him into a trap and slipped away at just the right moment. In the ensuing ambush, Caipio and thousands of other Romans were massacred. Once again, for those who believe in the curse, the family heirloom of the gold of Telosa was to blame. Yet the treasure was supposedly still hidden somewhere. One of Caipio the Younger's daughters was named Servilia, And Servilia was the mother of none other than Marcus Junius Brutus, the most famous among the group of men who assassinated Julius Caesar. Some believe that Brutus inherited the treasure and also the curse. And of course, this is one of the most famous bad luck stories. After the assassination of Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius and his fellow conspirators tried to carry on warfare against Caesar's supporters, but were defeated at the Battle of Philippi in 43 B.C., Brutus committed suicide by running into his own sword, conveniently held for him by two of his soldiers. When his wife got the news of his death, she committed suicide as well. And they had no surviving children. And that is where the trail of the gold of Tolosa goes cold. Perhaps it will be found by some intrepid archaeologist, but he or she just might end up regretting that discovery. Thanks for listening, everyone. Tune in in 2021 for Season 2 of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar House.